0: As was mentioned previously, what a delightful privilege and blessing it is to be able to gather this evening, to look outside and to see that wonderful sunshine and also the coolness with which we're blessed in here, the capability to appreciate that aspect of God's blessings upon us, and also to consider the privilege of opening the Word of God and to allow it to touch our hearts and to guide us in the way that is certainly right and appropriate in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. As certainly you might have already noted in the bulletin, we will continue our series of studies this evening as we move forward through the book of John. And again, the reason for which we made that selection was, of course, to aid or to at least encourage all of us in our study of John along with our Bible Bowl participants. And certainly we want to encourage and to be very thankful as a congregation for all who are aiding and participating in that by the preparation of questions and our youngsters who are studying and we who are older trying to help in whatever ways are available to us. I realize that the undertaking is a rather significant one and hopefully as we study John on Sunday nights, we can all be improved and bettered in our knowledge of the Word of God. In the opening two lessons of our series, we began with some introductory thoughts about the overview character of John, seeking to see the distinction between it and the other gospel accounts, as well as to look at the first 18 verses and to see, in essence, the prologue or the introductory remarks for that book. And then in the second lesson of the series, we turned our attention to the next section, the closing of chapter 1 and the opening verses of chapter 2, and we saw the essential character of belief as the Lord did various and sundry things to encourage disciples to believe. And quite often we notice that they did exactly that. Even when John spoke of Christ as being the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, immediately there were those that proceeded to follow. And even Andrew went and found Peter and shared with him the good news of the Messiah that he had found. And then as chapter 2 opened... The Lord, of course, performed his first miracle turning the water to wine at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Tonight, we will, in fact, continue at the very next verse in chapter number 2. That brings us to John 2, verse 13. And as we consider the lesson this evening, we will move toward, in fact, the concluding part of chapter 3, verse number 36 of that chapter. So as we seek to discuss at least briefly some of the high points of those verses from John 2.13 to John 3.36, I think we'll be reminded of a large number of truths which not only were pertinent and valuable then, but which in fact are as needful and in fact perhaps even more so in some ways for you and me today in order to be pleasing and to be acceptable before the eyes of our Father in heaven. As we thus move toward that goal, I've divided the lesson to three sections, for it seems that that set of verses divides nicely into three parts. From chapter 2, verse 13, on to chapter 2, verse 25, is a description of the Lord's cleansing of the temple. And so let's begin our lesson tonight with a discussion of that rather interesting and intriguing set of events that began early on in the Lord's ministry. As you can see there in the notes, I've tried to at least systematically and chronologically work through that set of verses, and it begins as follows. In the interest to observe the Passover feast, all Jewish males, of course, were required by God to do that observation in the city of Jerusalem at the temple. Earlier in the Old Testament, it had been at the tabernacle area. What we notice here that Jesus being the dutiful Jew that he was, proceeded to Jerusalem. And as you notice in verse 13, when he went there, he perhaps went with the understanding of the marvelous and wonderful religious activity that was to take place. It was to honor the God of heaven. It was to appreciate the Lord's bringing Israel out of ancient Egypt and the years of wandering in the wilderness and His protection of them. And yet... When the Lord arrived in Jerusalem, in verse 14, he found something that was startling, something that was shocking, and something that was bothersome. In fact, you might notice the language as to how verse number 14 presents that idea. John 2 verse 14 reads as follows, "...and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business." Here was Jesus, the Son of God, arriving for the observance of the Passover and much to his chagrin. He found in the temple these that were selling oxen and doves and sheep and those that had made a business out of the exchange of foreign money or currency so that others could purchase these sheep and doves and oxen. As we can readily see, the Lord was not pleased. In fact, so displeased was he that might we note the language of verses 15 and 16. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, "'Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise.'" A rather overwhelming mental thing has just occurred in our reading, hasn't it? As you continue to read some of the statements that were therein made, upon his discovery, his finding of these things taking place there at the temple, Jesus, it seems, with little hesitation at all, constructed a whip. And as he made this particular cord-like whip, we notice he drove out the oxen and the sheep. And furthermore, we seem to see in the next verse, the doves flew away as well, And Jesus overturned the tables and the money changers. This set of events was not appropriate for the temple. It was inappropriate then. It was not to take place there. The meaning, the message, the thrust, all were not done in an appropriate fashion, warranting its presence in the temple of God. As you can well see from the language that Jesus there said, take these things away. And if you're reading in the New King James translation at least, there's an exclamation mark following that word away. It's as if with emphasis and great emphatic character the Lord took care of this matter and proceeded to attempt to set things right. As you can well imagine, the Jews and the others participating in that selling and that merchandising were a bit unhappy. And thus, in the verses that follow, they proceeded to ask the Lord, "'Who gave you the authority to do this?' By what sign can you perform to us to inform us as of the authority that is yours, that has been vested in you, that permits you to do this kind of thing? As you can well tell also, the Lord answered their question in a very interesting fashion. He did speak about a sign, but it was not the kind of sign that they desired. He said, in fact, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. That was the sign, the matter, if you please, that was to be the defining characteristic. That would be the final evidence as to who he was. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now on that occasion, those Jews and the others present misunderstood. They said, Herod has been 46 years in constructing this temple, and will you rear it up in three days? They thought, you see, he was referring to that physical edifice in Jerusalem. But the inspired writer John informs us quickly that he was not. As you can see in the various passages, Jesus spoke about his body. He spoke about the character of the temple of his body that would be reared up, though it was crucified on the cross on that wonderful Lord's Day morning. Up from the grave he arose by the power of God, Romans 1 verse 4. It is interesting, isn't it, to remember on another occasion when the Lord was asked about a sign And on that occasion, in Matthew chapter 12, the Lord stated a very similar thing, didn't he? He said, there shall no sign be given you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And there the Lord explained that just as surely as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, the whale, as some translations put it, he said, even so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that was the sign. Here we notice an interesting correlation to the same thing, isn't it? It is a rather interesting point to notice that John helps us see how that after the Lord's resurrection, his disciples remembered this very event and they recollected that Jesus had said to them about that sign and John informs us they believed on him. It was an added emphasis that gave to their mind a great appreciation that he was who he said he had been and that those things that he taught and practiced were in fact the absolute truth as revealed by the God of heaven. Might we pause a moment to ask a question? After studying somewhat briefly this cleansing of the temple, might we remember that the Lord had to do this later in his ministry again? It seems they didn't learn the lesson terribly well this time. Isn't it interesting this one happened early on in his ministry. It will happen again near the close of his ministry as recorded in Matthew chapter 21. On this occasion the question for us interestingly about application might well be this one. If the Lord were to visit in bodily fashion the earth today, and were to choose various and sundry religious organizations and enter into the places of their worship, what would he discover? What would he find? Would he find, like had happened then, places that were basically nothing more than houses of merchandise? Would he find on various instances in which the places were basically houses of entertainment, would he find places that by and large were nothing more than houses promulgating false doctrine? I would submit that in all those instances, the Lord would say much the same as he said then, take these things hence. Worship is not entertainment. Worship is not merchandise. Worship is not about false doctrine. Worship is about honoring and reverencing the God of heaven, isn't it? In fact, the very definition of worship is this, acts of reverence directed to God. And thus, when we assemble and when we meet, it's not about making money. It's not about the character of upholding what makes you or me feel the better. Our preferences are irrelevant. What's God's preference? What has He declared in His Word? That constitutes, by the faithful obedience thereto, acceptable worship in His name. Didn't the Lord on one occasion make reference to vain worship in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9? On that occasion, did he not say, This people draweth nigh unto me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. In every instance, when we, by whatever means, allow the presentation, the thoughts, the speculations of men, to override and supersede and overrule the matters of God's declaration, that worship has become vain. And what's more, hasn't thus it become useless? It doesn't honor Him. It doesn't, in fact, exalt His presence and His name. Jesus again affirmed to that woman at the well, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit. And in truth, where in all the Old Testament was the authority to sell doves and sheep and oxen and to set up a whole business of money changing in the concourse of the temple? That hadn't been affirmed. It hadn't been authorized and approved. And today, if God hasn't authorized it and he hasn't approved it and he hasn't given his stamp of appreciation upon it, it has no business in worship. And he would still say, take these things hence isn't it interesting as we come to the close of that section in john chapter 2 we have in fact a very small and brief conclusion to that section into that chapter it has to do with the character of the lord's capabilities jesus there is described as one who did who did not commit himself because he knew what was in man That does help us to appreciate, doesn't it, the greatness of our Lord. Without ever speaking a word, the Lord could read what was in a person's heart. He knew what was being thought. He knew what was crossing the mind. He knew the motivations, the emphases, the incentives. He knew it all. And on many occasions throughout the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus would speak to someone in response to thoughts they were thinking, though they'd never said anything. We appreciate that you and I are different than that. We can't read anyone's thoughts. Despite what psychics may claim, they can't. They are not able to look into a person's mind, into a person's psyche, and to read what's there. (coughs) The remarkable truth is that the Lord didn't need to commit him to others, and in fact, he used that in great wisdom. For quite often, people, no doubt, would have taken advantage of him, would have tarnished and marred the character of his reputation and name if he had not had that capability. But that perhaps points us, doesn't it, to the opening of chapter 3 and the next section of the lesson tonight. The next section of this lesson has to do, as you can see in chapter 3, with a gentleman named Nicodemus. And I've entitled this section, The New Birth, ranging from chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 21. Again, as we sketch some of the high points of the Lord's conversation with Nicodemus, might I submit that there are grand and wonderful lessons contained in that conversation that, oh, how well the world needs to learn still today. There was a man named Nicodemus who came to the Lord by night. It would seem that in his choice to come by night, he was somewhat concerned about what others might think, or maybe he was in need of finding a time when he knew he could converse with the Lord due to Jesus' busy schedule and to the way that others seemed to make their way around him. As Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, he began by complimenting Jesus very highly Rabbi, he said, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these signs that you do except God be with him. And you might note again as we quote from or use the New King James translation that that reads and sounds a bit differently than the King James Version. As Jesus heard that compliment, he responded in language like this. He perhaps responded in a way that might to us seem a bit unusual, He immediately said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Lord laid forth an absolute verbatim criterion relative to seeing the kingdom of God, did he not? Nicodemus was obviously somewhat perplexed because in verse 4 he made this question. Of the Lord he asked, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then, with a marvelous stroke of heavenly genius, Jesus responded by saying, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can see the reason in which I entitle this section, The New Birth." On two occasions, the Lord has said, you must be born again. And now, in description of that event, he said, one must be born of water and of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Entrance into the kingdom, as we can see, does not happen and did not happen by just any manner that might be thought of. It was rather prescriptive, wasn't it? There was the necessity of rebirth. In fact, as you look very interestingly at what the Lord said there, I've tried to put together a few rather quick thoughts about that subject. As rebirth involves water and the Spirit, doesn't it harmonize, in fact, wonderfully and uniquely with other passages that are found in the New Testament? For by one Spirit are we baptized into one body. All three elements come together again. There's the Spirit. Baptism has the water and entrance into the body. The lovely and wonderful kingdom of God. As we see then the character of that wonderful harmony between that text in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, and this essentiality of rebirth in John 3, verses 3 to 5, we can perhaps also see yet another comment. As we understand this rebirth that's under description and discussion, It has a spiritual thrust, doesn't it? We will know that when a baby is physically born into the world, that birthing process is wonderful indeed. But as we understand that which is involved, the Lord was speaking about spiritual rebirth. That rebirth coming into the kingdom, wherein one is recognized as a member of God's family, the spiritual family of God. Today, when an individual submits in faithful obedience to the commandments of the gospel, is immersed, baptized for the remission of sins, having the prerequisites of faith and repentance and confession, that individual is thus added to God's family. And thus, no wonder there's an appropriate name change. When a baby is born into the world, it takes the name of its father. When you and I understand that that spiritual birthing process in which an individual by baptism enters the kingdom of God, that name Christian is thus bequeathed to that person. There is no right to hold any other name at all. What a, an affront then that must be when so many today in our world choose to wear amalgamated names that often don't honor Christ at all. Where's the honor of Christ in the word Methodist or Baptist? Baptist? or Presbyterian, or Episcopalian, or Anglican. I don't hear Christ in any of them. And yet the point is, when those names are chosen, how is one to be identified with the family of God? The name says it all, doesn't it? There is no association to God. They may think there is, but where is it found in the Word of the Sacred Scriptures? Baptism is a uniquely singular event. It identifies the completion of this new birth, And might we notice, it is not abortion. Spiritual abortion is a tragedy. And it can happen just as surely in the spiritual realm as it does in the physical. We will understand the heinousness and sinfulness of physical abortion. To take that youngster's life before it's born. And yet, isn't it true that in the spiritual realm, multitudes today are being spiritually aborted? And by that we mean they are encouraged to believe, and that's a necessity. And maybe they're encouraged to repent. That too is a necessity. Perhaps they're even admonished to confess, and that too is required. But multitudes fail on the last point. But if there's no baptism, there's no rebirth. It doesn't matter about belief and confession and repentance, as vital as those are, if they do not emanate in baptism, there has been spiritual abortion. There's no life, and that's as spiritually fatal as it is a sin to commit physical abortion. The marvelous wonder then is this, ye must be born again, and that birth demands the usage of water. Wasn't it Marshall Keeble who a long time ago said the Lord is not in the dry cleaning business? Water is in the plan of salvation. No matter of exegesis, no matter of biblical scholarship can remove it from God's wonderful plan. As in fact we lift high the banner of rebirth and its usage of water and the Spirit, might we notice perhaps one other comment? The importance of faith in that matter As you can see in John 3 verse 12, Jesus on that occasion made this statement. He said, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The Lord was describing the wonder that is the character of birth of a spiritual nature. You and I can witness it. We can appreciate the joy that surrounds it. But in terms of explaining the intricacies of the Spirit, And the way in which rebirth and the magnanimous nature of sin that's removed, quite frankly, that's beyond our full mortal understanding now. We shall wait until heaven's golden gate to full understand it. But we know by faith that that's what the Lord has said. And thus we know by faith that we must do it. If we are to be reborn and if we are to enjoy salvation forevermore. As you notice also so quickly in those notes, Jesus, in verse 14, began a wonderful comparison that should speak volumes to you and to me. Jesus likened the nature of some of the things concerning himself to something that occurred early in the Old Testament. In fact, let's note the association, please. And as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Jews would no doubt have been well familiar with that rather interesting scene in Numbers 21, when the children of Israel were overcome with murmuring and complaining, as they seem often to have been. But in this particular case, when they complained so much, the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, And the serpents bit many of them and they died. The people, of course, begged Moses for relief. And God commanded Moses, You take a brazen serpent and put it on a pole and lift it high, and anyone that's bitten by the fiery serpent, if they look upon the brazen serpent upon the pole, they shall be healed. Jesus, notice in that language, said, Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We well know that the words Son of Man refer to the Christ. He called himself on many occasions a Son of Man, and there he said, just as surely as the brazen serpent was lifted, and those that looked upon it would be healed if they had been bitten by the fiery serpents, even so now, all those who look upon the lifted up Son of Man can also be healed." We know that Jesus was lifted up, nailed upon a cross and lifted high in suspension between earth and heaven. And we know today that all who obediently look upon him can in fact be healed from that terrible snake bite of sin. And aren't we all suffering beneath it? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So all have been inf- afflicted, inflicted also, by the nature of that terrible and lethal bite of sin. If we look upon the Savior, the risen Son of Man, and apply the ointment that He's made available in the sacred scriptures, we too can be healed, just like they were in Numbers 21. That particular description Does it not lead us, rather interestingly, to the golden text of the Bible? For it was in this very context that Jesus to Nicodemus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We now have, I hope, a deeper appreciation of the placement of that golden text. After affirming the necessity of the Son being lifted up, and the healing power for all who will look upon it. Jesus now said, For God so loved the world. The love emanated in God sending His Son. His love amplified and emphasized by the sacrifice the Son made. And furthermore, that they who look upon Him and will apply the things of His teaching, not subject to destruction and to being perished, but rather to the loveliness of eternal life. Life that has no end. Life that does not have a ceasing point. Life that does not terminate. As you and I realize, the Lord was speaking something very dramatic, wasn't He? For we know physically we'll die if He delays His coming. He is speaking about the life that He will address on more than once throughout the rest of this book. To that lady at the well, He said, That water that I can give you will spring up into everlasting life. That kind of life we all should desire more than the life here on earth. We should have as our highest priority to so conduct ourselves and behave ourselves so that that life will be our inheritance. Later, even when Lazarus had passed away in John chapter 11, the Lord would readdress this same matter again. So we'll have the opportunity to study it many times in the book of John. But as you can perhaps see with me, In verse 17, that too is a beautiful text. For Christ came not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The Lord's mission from heaven was not first and foremost to condemn and to cause ruin and to pronounce loss. Now it's true, there will be condemnation, but He came to save. He came to make available a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation, a plan of sanctification, The fact of the condemnation then is this. Those who twist that passage and thus say that God won't condemn anybody have just just not read far enough. For notice what two verses later we read. In verses 18 and 19, which was a part of the reading we had read earlier, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The statement had just been made that Jesus came not to condemn, but to say, but now, he says, there will be condemnation. Who is it reserved for? Those that don't believe. Those who have not applied and implemented by absolute givenness and trust in the things declared to conform to the teaching of Christ. They will be condemned. That degree of condemnation, as seen in that passage, leads us to notice, interestingly, in verse 36, which is the last verse of this chapter. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, there are but two choices, and that's why I entitled the lesson the way that I did. It's belief or it's unbelief. There's no middle ground. One accepts then the teaching of the gospel and by faith conforms to it. That's belief. Anything else, no matter what the intentions might be, no matter how closely one may think he or she conforms to it, if one doesn't conform, it says the wrath of God is that which abides on that person. That thought closes the second of the sections of the lesson tonight. And in briefness might we notice the third section having to do with the declarations, the things spoken by John the Immerser. John speaks of Christ in chapter 3, verse 22, through chapter 3, verse 36. We are told that Jesus and the disciples came to the region of Judea. There they were baptizing, and the text quickly helps us see that it was not Jesus, but those disciples that were, in fact, actually performing the baptisms as that area of baptism was taking place, we have a rather interesting and somewhat subtle remark. It does, however, speak volumes. For it says in chapter number 3, verse number 23, Now John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem because there was much water there. Interesting. Interesting. Especially in light of some who might proclaim that baptism by way of sprinkling or that baptism by way of pouring a little handful of water is sufficient. John was baptizing near Enon, near Salem. Why? Because there was much water there. Baptism takes much water. One can't baptize in a little water. And inasmuch as much as much water is there, we later learn in the writings of Paul, in particular, the thrust of that much water. For, didn't he say in Romans 6, beginning in verse 3, Know ye not, he began with that question, Know ye not that ye which are baptized are baptized into Christ? You see, baptism is a burial. Baptism into Christ is burial into Christ. Just the same way one doesn't bury with a little dirt, one doesn't baptize with a little water. It takes much water. And here, John was baptizing in a location where there was much water. A dispute arose in verses 24 and following between John and the Jews concerning the subject and matter of purification. And in the matter of that description, John, in no uncertain terms, made a beautiful and yet profound point. You see, they tried to antagonize John. In fact, did you notice in the reading of that chapter, the language they used... Let's emphasize that by reading it in particular. It is found in particular in verse number 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Today, isn't it interesting how sometimes individuals have a desire to arise contention in the lives and thoughts of others. And they'll try to array one person against another. Here some people came to John and said, John, you know what? That man that you previously were talking about and the one you baptized, he's now baptizing and all people are going to him. It would seem they were hopeful to make John upset. In fact, because those were going to Jesus and not coming to him, was John upset? Was he bothered by the remark that they had made? Not only was he not upset, he used the occasion to correct their false perceptions. Notice, if you would, with me how he answered it. Verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John knew very well that he had been sent. He was one who had a heavenly mission. I'm not the Christ, but heaven has sent me as his forerunner, as the one, the voice crying in the wilderness, the one preparing the way. And so it was in the verses that followed, John declared, I must decrease, he must increase. John knew that he would quickly go off the stage of the Bible, but Jesus would remain on it perpetually. He was just like a minor stage actor. The major player in the act, the play being set forth on the stage, was Jesus. And John knew it. And he accepted his role with ease and with pleasure. And he proclaimed in truth the character of his message as the forerunner of the Christ. In those verses, verses 31 to 36, as the chapter closes and as so does our lesson, John stated many things about Jesus that were in fact quite lovely. Notice that he said, Jesus is from above. He also proclaimed that Jesus was from heaven. He furthermore declared that he, namely Christ, is the true testimony. And furthermore, as if all that wasn't enough, he said, God has not given him the Spirit by measure. He hasn't just a small amount of it. He has the full, complete package in all matter and in all degree and to all extent. And notice with me finally, he has been given all things. God has committed all things unto him. No wonder John recognized his role in 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 propriety to be merely one that must decrease because the ascendancy belonged to the Christ. Today, it hasn't changed in that regard. He still is the major player on the stage. He still is the one to whom all men must turn, In fact, the language we read of in Mark 1 seems appropriate, though it's from a different book. On one occasion there in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we read, "...all men seek thee." That was spoken to Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful if today truly all men would seek Him? All would give up all preconceived notions, all preconceived ideas, all worldly, carnal, material matters, all guidances but the serpent, the Satan, the devil and give their attention to the Master. If only all men would seek after Him. Tonight, whom do you seek? Do you seek the Master? As we have studied in conclusion this evening, we have seen three somewhat interesting and major ideas. The cleansing of the temple, reminding us of the importance of proper worship. God's house is not to be a house of merchandise. The worship time is not a time of these other matters. Secondly, we noticed as that chapter closed and chapter 3 opened, the matter of Nicodemus, the importance of the new birth. We finally have seen in that the nature of baptism as well as the role of the Spirit. And finally, in the latter section of the lesson, the remarks that John uttered about Jesus. Tonight, if your heart has been touched by the proclamation of truth, and you're in need of a public response, whether initially to become a child of God and thus engage in that act of spiritual birth, we'd be honored to assist you in your confession and baptism. If you have become a Christian and have known the good taste of the words of of the truth, but you no longer are faithful, don't remain in that lost state. Don't remain, please, in that state of separation from God but come back in love to him just like the prodigal son came to his senses. Would you not come to yours tonight? And if we could pray on your behalf, let us do that for the forgiveness of your sins. Please let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.